Good morning. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We will continue our study this morning. We have begun what is known commonly as the farewell discourse. We began last week in John chapter 13. And really, John puts his gospel in slow motion because the last half of the book, really, the from chapters 13 through the end of the book, really comes down to a focus on the last few days, even the last day of Jesus' life. Uh, and we will continue tonight in one of, uh, this morning in one of the most comforting passages, I think, in the Bible, John chapter 14. So follow along with me. The text is printed for you in your bulletin, or it's on the screen behind me. Uh, this is God's Word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And we're going to actually skip down to verse 15 now. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will not see me, will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not to the world. And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father, Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask him to come through his spirit and to help us this morning. Father, um, we come this morning, some of us uh, have never been better, uh, we are excited about what's happening in our lives, we are full of joy, and we have great peace, and Father, for that, uh, we're very thankful uh, for that gift, but there are others this morning who, as the passage says, uh, have, many of us have very, very troubled hearts. 
We have troubled hearts for lots of different reasons. Maybe it's the sin or addiction that we're struggling with this morning that we cannot seem to shake. Others of us, as we think about Mother's Day, it brings great pain. Because either we have lost our mother or we are dealing with the pain of infertility. And we're reminded of that today. Others this morning maybe are sensing their own failure. Others of us come with struggling marriages. Pressures at work. Struggling to parent our kids. Lord, we have lots of different things that trouble us. And we need a word this morning. Wherever we find ourselves, we need a word from the outside. And so would you come and be gracious to us, and through your Holy Spirit, would you manifest the Lord Jesus to us? Would you give us hope, and would you give us comfort? Would you convince us that we're a bigger mess than we realize, but convince us at the same time that Jesus is better than we think? In his name we pray. Amen. Look at verse 1. You'll see how this chapter begins. He begins by saying, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Well, obviously their hearts are troubled, or he wouldn't have began that way. Why are they so troubled? Well, remember chapter 13, if you were here last week. Remember the context for what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has just come to his disciples and said some very hard things to them. They are struggling. Uh, They are sad and they are hurting. Think about this. They had left their homes. They had left their occupations and their friends to follow Jesus. They had been with Jesus for three years. They loved him very much. And Jesus loved them. And to really put this in perspective, I, I love, I don't love, but it really does give us a picture. If you look at the end of Chapter 13, look at verse 33 if you have your Bible open. This really summarizes the picture of where the disciples are. He says, little children. He's talking to grown men, okay? (laughs) Little children. I am only with you a little longer, and where I'm going you cannot come. So think about the picture of a little child. And someone that they love very much walks out the door on them. Think about that pain and the confusion that the child is experiencing. But on top of that, imagine then, not only do they have someone walk out on them, but that person whom they love and who they think loves them looks at them and says, okay, you're going to want to follow me, but you can't come. You cannot come where I am going. That's where the disciples are. You throw that in on top of what they just experienced in chapter 13. Remember chapter 13, he looks at them and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they all look and say, is it me? So they're wrestling inside of their own hearts with internal things. And then to top that off, he looks at Peter. Remember, Peter was the guy who was the hard charger. And he looks, and if anybody uh, that... You know, this is, they look at Peter, and Peter uh, is saying, Jesus, I will never deny you. Never. I'm with you. Remember, Jesus looks at him and says, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Troubled. 
See, obviously the disciples know that there is some serious trouble and things that will, they will encounter in the days ahead. And so they're confused and they're afraid and they're sad. And it's in that context that Jesus looks at them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more practical passage for us this morning. Because you see, Jesus looks out at us this morning and he knows your troubled heart. He knows the heaviness in your own heart. He knows the fear that keeps you up at night. He knows the shame that you struggle with and your failures and your complacency and your anxiousness and your doubts and the outside pressures that come pressing in on you and the things that keep you up at night. And he knows how fretful you are on the inside And he looks at us just like he looks at the disciples and says, Little children, do not let your hearts be troubled. And in chapter 14 of the book of John, he gives us this morning the remedy for a troubled heart. And the remedy is that he reminds us of two things. He reminds us of our future hope and glory. And then he reminds us of something in the present that is true so that we might be comforted. So our future hope this morning and present comfort. Those are the two points if you're a note taker. Let's look at number one. Our future hope. Look at verses two through four. It says, in my father's house there are many rooms. And I am going away to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back for you. And you will be with me forever. That's in a sense what Jesus is saying. Remember the context, troubled hearts, internal pressures, and outward pressures. And the first thing that Jesus does for them and says to them is he starts talking to them about heaven. That's what he's talking about here. Now, why in the world would he do that? Well, because how you and I live in the present right now and the way we respond to trouble is controlled by what we think and believe about the future. How you respond right now to things in a broken, fallen world is shaped by what you believe about the future, what your future hope is. And one of the images and pictures that the Bible gives for us of heaven is a wedding. And we can't really see this that clearly, but Jesus in this passage is using wedding language in John chapter 14. Because when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and you will be with me forever, that would have been language that would have been very familiar to the first century Jews. Because back then, when a man would ask for a woman's hand in marriage, he would go to her, and he would say, I am going to prepare a room for you. I'm going to prepare a room or a house for you. And I am going away, and I'm going to build that house. And then I'm going to come back when the time is ready, and I'm going to get you, and we will be together forever. And so the groom would then go back to his father's house. And he would build a room onto the existing house. And he could not go get his bride until his father actually approved of the work that was being done. Because he wanted the son to properly honor 
his bride. And so when he got the go-ahead, the father would look and say, go get your bride. All the while, the bride is anxiously awaiting the return of her groom. And he would come and say, everything is now ready. And we will be together forever. And then there would be this huge uh, parade and a party, wedding party. Those, you know, back then they would last up to a week. And they would have the wedding and there would be this great time of celebration and feasting. And that's the Bible's picture. Get into that just for a second and think about the astounding picture of a groom excitingly preparing a home for his bride. It's what is used here to describe what Jesus is doing for you right now. He is preparing a place for you. And the disciples would hear this and they would immediately have picked up on what Jesus is saying because they went to weddings all of the time back then. And they experienced this type of thing. And it makes even more sense when you realize that the story of the world or the story of the Bible is the story of marriage. If we were to summarize the Bible, we could summarize it just like this. The Bible is primarily about a husband, Jesus, who is pursuing and caring for his bride, the church, which is you and I. But what's the bride doing the entire time he's waiting on the marriage ceremony? Running. (laughs) Unfaithful, running away from him. But Jesus, the groom, stops at nothing in order to bring the bride to himself and marry her. And then we get to the end of the Bible, and in Revelation 19, you see the rooms are now ready. And he, John, the same writer of this gospel, pulls the curtain and he says, let me show you a wedding. The great wedding feast of the Lamb. The rooms are now ready and, and Jesus, or and the Father looks at his son Jesus and says, go get your bride. And whenever that day comes, when Jesus returns, friends, it will be the biggest and the best wedding that you have ever experienced in your entire life. And not only will it be the best wedding, there will be quite the wedding reception as well. Because when the Bible describes it, you've heard me talk about this a lot. I love this verse, Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. Anybody like rich food? A feast of well-aged wine, a of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. As one commentator says, apparently heaven will not be a low cholesterol affair. And that suits me just fine. Think about it. I've done a lot of weddings through my time in campus ministry. You've probably been through a lot of weddings in in your uh, time as well. Think about the best wedding that you've ever been to. Think about the best wedding reception that you have ever been to that you didn't want to end. But what happens? It always ends. This wedding will never end. This wedding reception and celebration will never end. The wine will never run out. And so Jesus comes to his disciples and he comes to us in the midst of troubled hearts. People who are suffering and discouraged to have a past that they cannot shake, shake, who feel like failures, and he pulls back the curtain and he says, come here. Let me show you something. Let me show you a picture 
of this wedding. Endure. It's worth it. Do not give up. Jesus is preparing a place for you, and he is coming to marry you. Do not give up. My question, is that your future hope this morning? Is that your future hope? And I don't know about you, but I think that's very challenging because though we would never say this out loud, most of us would like to think that our hope, more often than not, is found in this world and that heaven is really not that exciting. If we're honest. Because oftentimes, the way we think, most of us would say, yes, of course I want Jesus to come back. Of course I want Jesus to make all things new and to marry us and to be this great celebration. But, not before I get married. Not before I get the home of my dreams. Not before I can make lots of money so that I can buy everything that I've always wanted. See, if we're honest, we have a really, really small view of the future. And what Jesus is saying this morning is saying, let me give you a picture of something so glorious and so big and so beautiful that if you were to actually grasp it, it would change your life and change the way you live right now. And it would actually bring peace to your troubled heart in a broken, fallen world. That's what he's doing with the disciples. There's this story about James Henley Thornwell in the 1800s. He had a daughter uh, that was getting married. Back then, as you know, that medical care was not as good as it is today, and so many parents actually saw their children die because they could not receive proper, proper medical care. Well, Thornwell, his daughter is getting married. They'd sent out all the invitations Five days before the wedding, she comes down with a fever, a serious infection, and ends up dying on her wedding day. All the people are coming, thinking they're coming to a wedding, but they're actually coming to a funeral. And Thornwell stands up at the funeral and talks about how excited his daughter was to see Jesus. And how excited that she was going to be the first person in the family that actually got to see Jesus face to face. And she even said before she died, I will be waiting for you as I am in the presence of Jesus. And they actually buried her in her wedding dress. And in Columbia, South Carolina, now on her tombstone, it says, here lies a bride adorned for her husband Jesus. How in the world? How in the world? Can on arguably her greatest day on earth, her wedding day, could she not, instead of being angry and frustrated and bitter, actually be genuinely excited to die because she gets to see Jesus so much so that she's buried in her wedding dress? Well, because you see, she had a living hope. She knew that Jesus was her true groom and that he was preparing a place for her. And that belief and trust actually reframed her present circumstances and brought peace and comfort to a troubled heart. Secondly, our present comfort. So our future hope not only helps our troubled heart, but a present comfort. Look at verses 
16 and 26. Again, you hear me say this a lot. You can't say everything. If you try to say everything, what happens? You say nothing. Uh, we could spend weeks on this one, one chapter, but I really want us to focus in on 14, or 16 and 26 and work out what Jesus means when he says that the Holy Spirit is another helper. If you look at that verse and you have your Bible open, you'll see a footnote that takes you to the bottom of your Bible and it says that this word could be translated counselor or advocate. And anytime you see that in your Bible, that means that that word is very, very rich and it could be translated in multiple ways. But I believe, and many scholars and commentators agree, that the better word there is actually counselor or advocate when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. Let me try to work this out. The fact that Jesus says that, there, that he is going to give us another helper, what does that imply? That there's one that has come before, right? So what does he mean? Who is the first advocate? Who is the one that has come before? What's well, interesting, John again, in another uh, one of his letters in 1 John, the only other time this word is used, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, if anyone does sin, he has an advocate before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for his sins. And so who's the first advocate? Jesus. Who's the second advocate that he's talking about here? The Holy Spirit. And unless you understand, unless we understand that Jesus is our first advocate, then we'll never understand the role of the Holy Spirit as our second. And so what do, the first thing we need to work out is what does it mean by this term advocate? Well, strictly speaking, uh, advocate is a legal friend. It is someone who comes alongside you and speaks for you on your behalf and actually represents you. And in our context, an advocate would be what? A lawyer. Uh, what happens when you go to see a lawyer? They represent you. They speak for you in the court of law. And if you have a good lawyer, they are eloquent and they, they are good and that makes you eloquent and good because they're representing you. If you have an advocate or lawyer who fumbles around in front of the judge and in the courtroom, then you fumble around in the courtroom because they represent you in the court. But why do we need an advocate? Well, because you see, Jesus is so good and kind and gracious because he knows that even if you and I claim freedom, that many of us still live as if we're on trial. Anybody else struggle with that? Still live as if you're in a courtroom. Still live as if you're on the witness stand constantly being scrutinized. Why is that? Well, the Bible says that even non-Christians, we all have this Deep down, we know that there is a God, that there is a bar of justice, that there is a standard. And even if God's not your standard, we make our own standards, and we can't live up to God's standard or our own standards. And so we, inside our own hearts, know that something deep down is horribly wrong in our souls, don't we? We know naturally that we're not acceptable, and because we're not acceptable, we look for, for verdicts from other people. We're looking to something or something or someone in our life to plug into 
to make us feel alive and worthy and acceptable and lovable and valuable. You see, what we want more than anything is we need, don't we, people to come in from the outside and look at us and say, well done. You are worth something. You have great value. And you know, growing up and your parents would tell you and the world says, it really doesn't matter what people think of you. The only thing matters is what you think of you. That's what really matters. Garbage. (laughs) That is not true. And you know that is not true because think about it. You might think you're fine, but if everyone else around you and all the other voices say that you're worthless and you don't amount to anything, it doesn't work. It's the old thing of, what, a hundred, and I feel this, a hundred compliments, but it's that one criticism, isn't it? That one critique or someone being critical of you that just sticks with you and you cannot let it go. You see, we need a word from the outside, don't we? We need someone more than anything to come to us and to say, you're beautiful. You're really something. And the job you did on that project, you knocked it out of the park. You see, we're all looking for verdicts. And when we get a verdict like that, what does that do to your soul? When you, somebody gives you a good verdict, you know what it does to mine? It puts extra wind in my sails. I move out into the world with an extra pep in my step. Why? Because you see, we're in a courtroom. And we got a favorable verdict. And so what do we do? Well, we've got to understand, first of all, that Jesus is our lawyer. That Jesus is our advocate. And that he represents us in the court. And why does that matter? And Tim Keller, a few years ago, opened up this idea of Jesus being the first advocate and the Holy Spirit being the second And it's really been life-changing for me. And here's what he says. He says, we tend to think, and this is what we do, we tend to think that when I mess up, that Jesus goes before God the Father and says, Jason's done it again. He's done it again. Would you please forgive him? Would you please just give him one more chance? And we just kind of imagine the Father wringing his hands and begrudgingly saying, well, okay, one more chance. But that's not it. You see, that's not the picture. Jesus is not pleading for you. Jesus is actually your lawyer. And you know as well as I do that a good lawyer doesn't just go to the judge and say, please let him off. No, a good lawyer goes before the judge and makes a case. And here's the case that Jesus makes for you. He says, I died on a cross. And I have paid the debt for all of their sins. And so now the scenario is, yes, I know Jason has done it again, but I'm not asking for mercy because I've paid this debt. And it would be unjust of you to demand two payments for the same debt. I want justice. I want a full acquittal. You see the difference, friends? That is an indestructible case. And that's the job of Jesus, your first advocate, is to go before God the Father and say, I know what they've done, but look at what I've done. Look at all that I have done, and now accept them in me. 
You see, the verdict is in on you this morning. And if Jesus is your advocate, friends, in the only court that really matters, you are beautiful and you are loved and you are accepted. And so then what is the job uh, of the other advocate, the Holy Spirit? Well, think about it this way. The first advocate is your legal advocate speaking to the Father on your behalf. That's what Jesus does. Well, then what does the Holy Spirit do? He speaks to you for you. Here's what I mean. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to argue in the court of your own heart and remind you of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. The Holy Spirit's job, and we'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 16, is to take the spotlight and to shine it on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make what he has done for you real and true to your heart. Look at verse 26 through 27. But the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will teach you all the things and help you to remember all that I've said to you. Peace I leave you. Peace I give you. Here it is again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Think about all the, we've seen peace, troubled. And then he says, do not be afraid. Isn't it interesting that all throughout the Gospels, we never hear Jesus saying, don't be sorrowful. Don't be sad. You know what we hear over and over and over and over again? Jesus saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Because you have a good advocate called the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart and reminds you of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done and said. And so what's the cure for a troubled heart this morning? How do you overcome your anxiousness and your insecurity and the things that keep you up at night? Well, isn't it interesting? I wish it were this way because it'd be a whole lot easier. But Jesus does not give you a program. He doesn't give you a method and say, go do these three things, X, Y, and Z, and all your troubledness in your heart will suddenly go away. No, he doesn't do that. He does something even better. Might not be easier, but it's better. He says, let me give you a person. Let me give you the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come and dwell inside of you. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. Let me give you a person, a person who when you feel crushed by criticism, tells you that your worth is not found in the comments by other people, but it's found in what Jesus thinks of you. It gives you a person who inside your heart, when you feel lonely and afraid, says that you are never alone, that he is with you always until the very end of the age. He gives you a person who when you're fearful about the future reminds you that God is in control and that he's good and that he is holding your life in his hand. He gives you a person who when you are fearful and controlling your children reminds you that Jesus loves your children more than you do. You see, that's the second advocate. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He argues with you in the court of your own heart and reminds you what is real and true about Jesus and who he is, and it's our job to simply listen. I'll close with this story. There's a story of a Welsh preacher who talks about when he was a teenager, 
he had this aunt who was a very strong Christian who was dying. She was on her deathbed, and he talks about being huddled around her uh, when she was on her deathbed, and he, she was slipping away, and they thought she was unconscious and couldn't hear, and another family member said rather loudly, well, you know, it's just such a shame that she had to have such a hard life, and she saw two husbands die before her, and she'd been sick most of uh, the last few years of her life, and on top of that, she died poor. He says, all of a sudden, the aunt, who they thought was unconscious, her eyes pop open, she pops up in the bed and says, who's calling me poor? I am rich, and I stand before God bold as a lion. And a few minutes later, she lays her head back down and passes away. See, that woman had a peace and a confidence in the face of great loss and in the face of a troubled heart. Why? Because she listened to her advocate. She listened to her advocate, who in a sense, what she was saying was, I got the only husband who can never die. And I've got the only wealth that can never be taken away from me. And my Savior has dealt with the only sickness and disease that can truly kill me, my sin. How dare you call me poor? See, that's what she was saying. And that is a picture for us of what it looks like to listen to the Holy Spirit. Come and calm a troubled heart. Because you see, when you listen to the Holy Spirit and He comes and He calms your heart, He reminds you of the riches that you have in Jesus so that you stand before the throne of grace bold as a lion. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that... um, Because of Jesus, the verdict is in on us. And that we do not have to live our lives like we're on trial. Lord, we uh, confess that we so easily try to prove our own value. And we look to verdicts and to so many other things. Lord, help us to believe. We pray through your uh, Holy Spirit, the second advocate. I pray that he would come this morning and remind us of who we are. Help us to not be afraid. Calm our troubled hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.